Mm-hmm. Yeah. So wellness to me are the things that you do. So I have this created this holistic wellness spectrum, and a lot of the methodology that I put in place is really based on risk management principles, right? When you start and you look at risk management for a company, you're trying to figure out, well, what can go wrong? It's no different with wellness, right? What are those access points that we have? And they're broad. It's not just eating or exercise. It goes through the spectrum of simplifying your life, of being creative, of being spiritual, of having connections with relationships with coworkers and your family and the community. So it's, I think of that as broad. The things that we do for ourselves in those areas, to me, is wellness, is keeping ourselves well. It's those things that we do. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a former Fortune 500 corporate disciple who found her inner self through becoming an author, speaker, and certified wellness coach with Athena Wellness. Her career has involved senior executive roles in audit at Credit Linus, City, Morgan Stanley, and ADP before embarking in her career as an author, speaker, and certified wellness coach. As an auditor, she has assessed the wellness of Fortune 500 corporations. Now she assesses personal lives as they navigate through midlife transitions. I'm excited to bring you a passionate wellness coach who has infectious energy, completed her first ultra marathon at age 54, lives by the philosophy, one size fits one, and is the author of the Athena Principles, Kathy Robinson. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Craig. It's great to be here. <laughs> so uh, before we dive into the world of Athena, what kept you busy as a child? Well, I, um, I grew up in a very urban environment. I grew up about a mile from New York City on the New Jersey side. Uh, a mom and dad, an Italian mom and an Irish dad, uh, one from Brooklyn, the other from Hoboken, New Jersey, and a brother and sister that were 10 and 8 years older than I was. So I had a lot of time to myself uh, to keep uh, occupied. Um, but what my parents really instilled in me, you know, they really had uh, an immigrant mentality uh, and also uh, a very hardworking work ethic. And so I remember them making very hard choices to be able to keep, you know, we never wanted for anything, but we also, there wasn't a lot of excess. So I can remember at a very early age, feeling that drive of wanting to have a different kind of life for myself. There was a lot of, a lot of love and a lot of family uh, life and vitality, but I wanted to make sure that I put myself in a position that was different and they didn't have to make, I didn't have to make the kind of choices that they had to make throughout their adult years. Yeah. So outside your parents, who had the greatest influence on your life during those formative years? I had a wonderful, wonderful grandmother that lived in Brooklyn, New York, uh, my mother's mom, uh, who lived to the wonderful age of 96 in a four-story walk-up apartment building, uh, was a lovely cook and just was pure love. And uh, uh, she was a huge influence on, you know, coming from the, she was born in 1904 and basically raised four kids on her own in a time when that wasn't okay. You know, her husband died at a young age and she stayed widowed for her entire life and raised four kids in a three room apartment in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, I really talk about resilience, uh, but with such an uplifting personality that I think she really gave me that spark uh, that, you know, when you have to face something that's difficult, you can keep going like there's there's nothing stopping you but yourself. And so she was a wonderful role model. Yeah, beautiful. It just reminds me, I heard the other day that there's this 99-year-old man who has decided that he wanted to do 100 laps of his backyard before he turned 100, and he's on the Zimmer frame, and he'd raised 25 million pounds already. 
during during the crisis. So it's amazing what you can achieve. Um, you know, at the in the in the years of the you're ninety years old or older, and you know it's it's amazing. So I <laughs> sort of bring that in there. Well, without yeah, a doubt, but... and I, and I will tell you, my father is ninety eight. Bless him, um, doing well through this through this virus of sound mind, body, and and spirit. So uh, blessed with a long lineage for sure. Yes. <laughs> so, what inspired you to choose a corporate career in audit and financial risk? So I came out of college with a lot of debt and what was paying at the time in the mid 1980s was Wall Street. And so I was very fortunate to uh, to get a job at Irving Trust Company, which was one Wall Street. And I thought that was so prestigious, you know, back then. Um, and and the two things that actually drew me to audit one was. It was this opportunity to see everything that the company did. You know, my my ID got me to any place, whether it was vaults that held precious metals or any of the files or or activities that the bank did. And I really learned a lot about how a company operates from every single level and, and interfacing with a lot of folks. The second thing that really drew me was I was a kid that really grew up in New Jersey. And this was an opportunity potentially not only to travel to upstate New York, which is where the bank was chartered, but internationally. And I thought that that was a pretty amazing opportunity. So my goal when I took that job in June of 1986 was to get to be one of eight people out of 125 people selected the next time that we got to go abroad. And in February of the following year, a supervisor came up to me and said, do you have a passport? And I like, I laughed. I was like, no, I don't have a passport. He said, well, you're going to need one because you're coming with me to Asia for a month. And that was it. I mean, that was that started a love affair with global travel. And I really think that kept me in the game, uh, making friends worldwide for, for more than three decades. Uh, it was really an amazing opportunity to really expand my perspective and I think that really opened a lot of doors, not only externally, but internally for, for myself and for my own development and growth. It's a great example of setting your intention going into a job and actually being able to achieve it relatively quickly. So well done on that. And, you know, having that opportunity to explore different worlds is you know, a huge um, advantage when it comes to being a leader and, and, and having a different perspective in teams. Mm hmm. Yeah. So. You started to find your way into some of the world's largest corporations and you know if you look at say going into Credit Linus in New York City just over 30 years ago now you know what was it like on day one to step inside a culture of such a huge um, global entity? Yeah, I mean, uh, the nice thing about Credit Line was uh, we were responsible for the Americas. So it was North and South America. And I spent a lot of time in South America in those years. But we had, although it was a 65,000 person company, we were responsible for about 1,500 in the Americas. And so I could pick up the phone and get anybody in that company, which was amazing as a manager and then an assistant vice president to be able to have that kind of, of uh, interaction. It wasn't until I left Credit Lyonnais and, and then went to Citibank, I was one of 340,000 people at the time, and I was just lost. I stayed there for about 18 months. I really felt like I couldn't really get, I couldn't make an impact in an organization that was that large. Um, and then so going to Morgan Stanley after that, that was really where I think, you know, experience is a great uh, uh, it, it levels things out. Morgan Stanley would have never hired me out of a small college when I graduated, you know, 10, 15 years prior. But suddenly the experience that I had made me useful in that capacity. And that was really a place where I saw that I could really start to make a difference. And I loved working for that company. Um, but I really also got burnt out, which, which, which really brought me to some of the wellness practices um, and having that as an outlet when everything was work-related and I was never seeing the light of day, but there were those four times a week at that time where that was my time, for whether it was an hour or 45 minutes that I was really making that investment in me, whether it was lifting or whether it was doing some cardio, but that kind of an outlet that was really, that kept me going uh, in, in times where I really felt like I was running on fumes. Yeah, it's interesting you're bringing up burnout there. And there's, there's a couple of different schools of thought around burnout. You know, burnout can be just purely because you are 
constantly going and just working too much and, and so focused on one thing. Or it could be that you're not getting enough time to focus on the things that you really love and are passionate about. What are your, you know, for you, was it the missing out on the things that you are love and passionate about or was it just because you were in that really strong daily grind? Yes, <laughs> it was. It was both. But if I had to put a weight on it, it really came down to the things that I was really passionate about that I just wasn't doing. And so so you hit the nail right on the head. Um, when I think back on my wellness journey throughout my corporate career, it really started in my mid 30s when I was at Citibank when I, I realized that I, I really needed to make an investment back into my health and wellness. And it started where most people start, which is diet and exercise. And so when I really had that down and I was feeling much better, I went to Morgan. And then as time went on, my, my almost five years there, as I was getting more and more depleted, one of the last things I did while I was there is I took a vacation, which was almost unheard of in those days. Morgan Stanley, it was like a badge of honor that you didn't need that. And I was in the wilds of Alaska, like just this unfettered wilderness, and it was quiet. And you know when things get that quiet, those little whispers start. And it was exactly what you said. I realized I was playing it safe. I had this great job. I had, you know, all of the outside trappings. But inside, I was really not nourished, and I was dying. I was just dying and withering on the vine. And so I needed to come back and make some changes. And that's when I came back within three months. I had moved from Morgan Stanley to ADP. Uh, my old boss at, at Credit Lyonnais actually uh, moved over to ADP and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm at ADP now. Would you like to come and, and join my team? And that was 15 years ago. Ah, oh, beautiful. So we took a little bit around the financial aspects and, you know, with the financial crisis that, um, you know, we're facing at the moment, we're, we're going into recession, potentially a depression as well with the way governments are spending and, and moving out money. And, you know, there's going to be a big shift in that financial space. As they tend to happen around every eight to 10 years, is the human race really learning from their risk and audit mistakes or are we just creatures of habit and keep repeating the same ones? Yeah, you know, I think they get more complex. Um, you know, back in the day when I started an internal audit, we were trying to find money laundering by looking through like tickets, actual deposit slips, you know, to try to find these structured transactions. And now everything is done by computer. And even now I look at my phone and watch the stock market. We never had shifts like that, but that's because everything is automated. So the world has gotten more complex. You know, back in 2008, I had to put my audit hat on too and say, you know what I have, if I was still at Morgan Stanley, would I have caught that? You know, it sounds like, well, they had both sides of the transaction, but you don't know that. There are different trading desks and there are different locations and there's different strategy and objectives. And no one was really pulling that lens back to say, okay, how does this work as an ecosystem? Let's go outside of the banks and look at it as an ecosystem. And I think what this pandemic is teaching us is that we really are a very tight ecosystem. And are we really looking at our risk management practices? And, and whose job is that? Who takes the lead in that? So these are really complex questions. So I don't know if it's that, do we not learn or are we have our practices really caught up to the times? And I think there's a lot to learn there. So you retired from the corporate life and working in that risk and audit space uh, last year, so just before we went into COVID-19. Are you kind of missing it right now or are you quite happy that you're not having to deal with that space at the moment? I actually, you know, my former boss and I both retired at the same time. We were both uh, 55 and, and I texted him just a few weeks ago and I was just like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's not that I don't have empathy and compassion for my from for the folks that are still there and I'm still in touch. But do I, my soul, do I miss that work? And the answer is I love doing what I'm doing. Every day I get up with such energy and enthusiasm. And so while I wish I could help and make a, a difference there, it really felt like that portion of my life really came to a close. And so I, I feel a lot of peace around that. And even in this was a good test to say, you know what? I really do think that I made, I made the right choice. I really do feel that. Yeah. So, so during your corporate career, you faced the same challenges many people do as they fall into the trap of, or the career trap as they focus is so blinded by living the high life and, and living that, that you know, real corporate chase. 
Were there, you know, you talked about one key moment there about going up to um, Alaska and having some time off from your work there at Morgan Stanley. Were there any other key moments that you can recall which made you realize there was a lot more to being an important cog in a corporate machine? Yeah, I think the good news is that I never really identified with my corporate life. I always had, you know, and I told you a little bit about my background. Like when I went home, I don't think my parents ever really understood what I did for a living. You know, there just wasn't that kind of that's that wasn't who I was when I was in my home life. And so there was a little bit of a bifurcation there, which in itself is has some wellness challenges, right, of not bringing your your full self to to work or in, in either place. Um, but I actually did have a, a, a very clear moment of clarity. It almost seemed like they came at five-year intervals, like my mid-30s for health and wellness, my 40s for that, you know, hey, you need to be doing something different. In my mid-40s, uh, I went, I really got into writing, and I went to a writing retreat on on Whidbey Island, which is off the coast of of Seattle, and again, this kind of uh, this moment where you're really meeting yourself of I wanted to be a writer so bad. And here I was with a group of 10 strangers and a writing facilitator on an island, people I didn't know, environment I didn't know. And I was showing up to say, do I have what it takes to be able to do this? And so like the stakes for me were incredibly high. And when we got on site, we were told we're going into silence for 36 hours. And you're going to write a piece because on the last day that we're all together, everybody gets a half hour to read their piece and to get feedback. And I was like, whoa, like, I was not anticipating that. In going through that silent period, however, um, I really got deeply in touch with who I was. Like there was, I had access to areas in myself that I didn't even know existed. And so when I came back from that experience, so much had changed, but it wasn't visible. And I think that one was the hardest one of all because I all of the pieces inside completely shifted. And I'm going back to work and people are like, hi, how was your vacation? And I didn't even have the words to be able to, to talk about what had happened. So that really set me on the path. And that was 10 years ago now that, okay, I knew when I was getting close to 55, there was going to be a shift. What does that look like? And how do I get the pieces in place? And who do I want to be in this second reinvention of myself? And so this was a very long shift. But that that uh, experience was really the, the it was like an, I got ignited to be able to say, you know what, you are much more than this. And so I think I always kind of had that in the back. The hard part was trying to show up every day as the corporate guy knowing that there was this deep other life that was being created uh, at the same time. What was the greatest thing that being away on that, um, that writing retreat, the thing that unveiled to you the most that you didn't really understand about yourself, what came alive during that time? What was that kind of real specific thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there is a still point uh, and a place where there's a lot of, of inner wisdom that when, you know, you come from New Jersey, you're in New York and you're on wall street, you're doing all these corporate things. There's a lot of layers and a lot of like a hard shell around that. And suddenly I was in this atmosphere where all of that cracked away and all that was there was this really soft, tender, amazing place. I mean, I remember going up to the facilities facilitator saying, you can't send me home this way. <laughs> like you, You've got to help me here. Like I'll never survive back on the East coast like this. I was really like, felt like I was in pieces, but really what that was, was a way of showing that, you know, people talk about vulner vulnerability and leadership. Like that's what vulnerability is when you're really coming from a place that is so deep that, um, you're not afraid, you know, you find a way of just really truly being yourself and being able to show that. And that was something that took a long time for me to catch up with myself. Like I had to grow into that. You know, you don't just step into this new place and be like, well, I'm leaving from this place now. There really is a lot that has to drop away. A lot of the old life had to drop away to be able to create the environment where leading and living and loving and writing from that place was um, 
was okay and was safe. Like it really took some time for me to be able to catch up with myself. In catching up with yourself, in your book, Athena Principles, you talk about the mystery world that many people, including your former self, live in when it comes to making changes in the way they approach their wellness. Why do you still find wellness a bit of a taboo in the workplace? Yeah, I, I told the story in the book of as I was leaving uh, and people wanted to know what I was doing. They're like, oh, are you going to move to Florida? What is it that you're going to be doing with your life? And when I said I wanted to be, I was going to be a, a wellness coach, I was writing this book, they would kind of look around and, and make sure that it was okay to, you know, and kind of test the waters of like, you know, I've, I started eating a plant-based diet or, you know, I started meditating and I, I really feel better. Like, is meditating part of wellness? Almost like, asking for permission. And once there was engagement, like they just lit up. And I realized, you know, we all say that we're, we try to lead authentically, but do we really bring our whole selves? And I'm guilty of this too. I had a meditation practice for probably five or seven years. I never mentioned that to anybody. It was just this thing I did to get myself ready to go into the work world. And so it really gave me pause to say, do I have an opportunity here to almost be like the corporate whisperer, like it's okay. I know. I, I've I've had to report to a board. I've I've had to report to executive manager. Like I get it, and it's also okay for you to be able to do these things to take care of yourself. Because by taking care of yourself and making that investment, you're really going to show up in a way people are going to respond to you in a different way. And I did find that in the last, probably the last five years of my career there really was a shift as I was starting to step into this new way of being. People didn't know why, but there was more of an accessibility, I think, to me, more of a willingness to, to converse at a deeper level. And, and I made a lot more friends in those last five years that I'm still in touch with than I think that I had it throughout my career because there was always this you know, the sense of business and this is the way we conduct ourselves. And suddenly as, and the work world has changed too with our, you know, the, the new folks that have come into the workforce, uh, the way we're working from homes, like all of the old corporate structures are slowly coming down. And I think the environment is right to be able to have these conversations and to be able to grant our executives and our workers permission to, to truly bring their whole selves to work because that in itself brings so much more productivity to the workplace. People feel like it's really me that you want here. Like I'm really bringing some sense of value. And I really think that's a, it's a huge shift and it's a really beautiful thing to see. So we've talked a little bit about wellness and well-being so far. So how do you define wellness and what separates it from well-being? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so wellness to me are the things that you do. So I have this created this holistic wellness spectrum and a lot of the methodology that I put in place is really based on risk management principles, right? When you start and you look at risk management for a company, you're trying to figure out, well, what can go wrong? It's no different with wellness, right? What are those access points that we have? And they're broad. It's not just eating or exercise. It goes through the spectrum of simplifying your life, of being creative, of being spiritual, of having connections with relationships with coworkers and your family and the community. So it's I think of that as broad. The things that we do for ourselves in those areas, to me, is wellness, is keeping ourselves well. It's those things that we do. The result of all of that, though, how we feel to me is well-being. So my overall well-being is how I'm doing. So where do I rate as a result of doing these things? And I don't mean that as a scale from one to 10, but how am I feeling? And that's very fluid. You know, I find that with these wellness assessments that I do for my clients, I did them for myself and they're very different. My wellness assessment in my 30s is very different than my 50s, things change. So the things that I wanna focus on today are very different than where I would focus in my 30s or my 40s because I needed different things from my wellness practices then. We talked about a little bit earlier there going from retiring from the corporate world and coming into your own business. You know, how challenging was it for you to make that decision to step out of the comfort of a guaranteed pay to becoming a solopreneur or entrepreneur? Yeah, that was probably the biggest uh, concern that I had for 33 years. And before that, I mean, I've been working since I was 10 years old. There was always that steady paycheck. 
I really had a turning point. I started working with a digital marketing coach probably about two years ago. And it really became clear that I had an expertise that could be, could be translated and could be useful. And I just had to learn how to actually turn it into a viable business. And this is a learned skill. So uh, it, it was really trying to take my experience and make turn this into something that's useful for, for clients. Um, so once I really started to break it down and come up with an action plan and see some action against that, it became much more achievable. And then I, I did have a point in time where I said, you know what, like, why shouldn't I be doing this? Like, why not? It, I almost turned that question around and why not? And once I really started to explore business and what I could do, I think the excitement and the enthusiasm, I mean, it just started to build on itself. And what I love about getting up, I mean, I literally get up and first of all, count my blessings that I'm so lucky to be able to have this kind of opportunity. And I don't want to let myself down uh, as well as a lot of people are pulling for me. You know, I have a lot of support. And so I feel like um, there's really um, uh, it comes back to that pull from when I was a kid. It's like it's a different way. I feel like I have to prove something to myself. And so in a good way of like, how how can you show that what you're preaching actually works? And so I'm using myself as an experiment to say, hey, this is how you live aligned with what your values are and what your beliefs are and how you want to feel every day. And I'm living proof of that. And so I have to put myself through that process to really be a good model for the folks that I'm working with. And that's the way I've been looking at it. We've talked about Athena coming up in the conversation so far and the Athena Principles, which is your new book. Is it released yet or coming out soon? It was released on Monday. Ah, yes. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Now, it's the Athena Principles, the simple wellness practices for overworked professionals. You, you describe the meaning of Athena in your words as representing the perfect balance between left brain logic and oct an objectivity and right brain intuition and creativity. I'm curious to know more about this connection and why it holds true to your heart. Yeah. What's so fascinating to me is I've been in boardrooms and been with CEOs and to see as I'm bringing information and I did this as an audit and risk professional as well, right? The models say one thing, but you know, deep down inside if something doesn't resonate, if something isn't right, and to be able to watch myself make certain decisions and to watch the folks that are actually running the companies do the same thing. And they would use words like, yeah, I understand that. But, you know, it feels like more than not, you know, I used to hear that all the time and it always fascinated me. So they would never use the word intuition. That would be too woo-woo. But there was something that's saying, you know what, I have to listen to what my gut is telling me. Like I'm going on gut instinct here and we're going to give this a shot. So I, I saw that in the business world. What I love about Athena and the reason why I use that as an archetype is there's nothing I can tell a client that they don't already know. And I really believe that. And I know whenever I pick up a book like this, if somebody tells me, hey, here are the five things that you need to do and you'll be living a great life, I don't buy it. What I was trying to create was much like risk management, what's my methodology? What's my model? What is something that somebody can take and say, okay, I see how this is laid out. This applies to me. This doesn't apply to me. Or it can be scaled and it can grow with me. As my wellness practices grow, this can grow for me, but it can be amended and adapted. And so you mentioned the one size fits one in your introduction. That actually came from a a risk management professional, a consultant that I had hired a number of years back. And the reason why I hired him is because he came in and said, I can't tell ADP how to do risk management because one size fits one. We can find the right way for you. And that never left me because that that's why I hired him. It's like, yes, let's come up with the right way for this company. And I feel the same thing about wellness. Let's come up with the right way. I need to come up with that for me. And each individual needs to come up with that for them. And it is a mix. There's a logical side that says, well, I need to eat less, move more, whatever the basic principles are, that's fine. But then there's a sense of, well, how does it really, what do I need to focus on now? So if I had a very structured approach that said, well, we need to start with exercise and diet. If I did that to me when I was at my Morgan Stanley, when I was running on fumes, 
there, I, I couldn't have taken that on. What I needed then was quiet, little, little pieces of quiet, five minutes at a time. And I needed some, some space. I needed some, some downtime. I didn't need additional pressure on me. So that's what I like about this approach is that it can meet a person where they are. And not only is it a logical approach, but it's what is it that I need right now? And that's the first principle of self-compassion and really trying to understand what is it that I need right now? And how do you give that to yourself? Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So there are five Athena principles. Can you inform our listeners what they are? Yeah. Yes. And actually, when I was writing this, I was wondering, is anybody going to buy this book? Because it seems so uh, it seems so basic. But what I was trying to do, you know, the book opens with a story when I was crossing this ultra marathon finish line. And 20 years before, when I was in my mid 30s, I could not run one lap around a track. And so when I set out to write this book, I wanted to figure out and codify what happened in those 20 years? Because I never set out to run an ultramarathon when I was 35. What happened that allowed me to do that? And so that's where the principles and the practices came from. So the principles are self-compassion is the first one. And I made that the first one because it was the last one that I actually came into uh, and actually was able to, to work through. Because as simple as it sounds, it's the hard, it was the hardest one for me. So self-compassion the second one is intention, you know, not goals. We can be very goal-driven, especially in corporate, but how do we actually set a, an intention that is present focus and is really connected to emotion? Um, the third one is consistency. So how do we show up for ourselves? The fourth one, which I think is the accelerator, is a growth mindset. And that's a combination of attitude and habit. And then the last one is accountability. And accountability to really look at ourselves of, okay, how did that go? Let's assess it. Let's keep ourselves accountable, but let's celebrate the wins. And if it's not working for us, let's, let's, have, let's be humble enough to be able to say, well, let's make some adjustments and let's try something else. So, and that leads us back to self-compassion of like, let's not, let's not make ourselves do something just because we feel we should. What really is resonating for us and what will make the biggest difference in our, in our well-being? So for right now, people are living in the world of COVID-19. So how can people translate or relate the five Athena principles to what is happening right now? Yeah. And I really think right now the most important one is that element of self-compassion. What I'm finding is I, I, as I, I hold um, evening uh, classes, uh, some of them are a mix of meditation and writing. And what I find the needs are they range from really two camps. One is some people feel like this is the time like no other, and I'm going to use this and I'm going to come out better. And they're very motivated by it. And then there's another camp that's just overwhelmed by it all. Those are two very different needs. And this area of self-compassion and really taking five minutes, you know, just hand over heart breathing of, okay, what is it that I really need today? And being able to answer that question and giving that to ourselves, I think that is probably the best advice or recommendation that I can give somebody because this is a global experience, but we're having 8 billion different types of experiences through it. You know, it's different for somebody who's on the front lines, a, a police officer, a, a doctor versus somebody who's sheltering at home. The difference between having kids and trying to school them or trying to do a, a corporate job when you're working with a spouse that's at home as well. So I think there are so many different needs to do something, to say something at a high level is, is would just blanket it, but to be able to just take a pause. And I used to do that when I was at my busiest at ADP and everybody was looking for an answer. I would set my alarm five minutes early, 10 if I had the time, and just put my hand over my heart, take a deep breath and just say, okay, for the next five minutes, nobody needs anything. You don't have to make a decision. What is it that you need right now? And I would listen to that and try to the best that I could give myself that in that moment. It's interesting. We get a lot of people who say, uh, my productivity has gone through the roof. My team's productivity is, is so much better than what it was before. Is that just a 
it's happening at the moment because everything is like kids in a candy store. Everything is the new shiny thing. Is the motivation there because it's different and unique and exciting? Or And, and are we gonna see that continue or are we gonna see people just get to a point where they start to lose productivity because they're missing what they had before? Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting as this starts to unfold, because you're right. Right now we're in something I think a lot of people want to prove their worth right now, right? That, yes, I can be just as productive at home. Uh, We can make this happen because some people are teetering on the edge of whether or not they're going to have jobs. So I think that rush of productivity is what do you need? I'm the person that can get it to you. As we as this unfolds over time, I think we're going to see waves. And I think this is where something like an ultra marathon mentality comes in handy of how do you do we're gonna be fine through this first one. Then the fall is going to come. What's going to happen in the winter? And I don't have the answers to any of this, but I think we could anticipate that there will be, you know, a rise and fall as as we go through this. And What's it going to be like on wave three? You know, that's where we really start to see the rubber meet the road there. So I can understand why there is that uptick. Uh, I get more concerned at what the long term mental and emotional impact will be, because I think some folks are going to be able to fare better than others. And it's a very, uh, you know, when people are really struggling mentally, it's a very quiet disease. Like you don't always see it. And being sheltered at home, it's removed even more so. So uh, I think there is a lot of, um, we're going to have to be mindful as we move forward and see people, how people are, are adjusting as we go through. But I would expect that we would see that spike in productivity kind of even out as time goes on. Yeah, I think so too. And, and then because at the moment we're getting a whole lot of businesses go, you know what, this is great. We're going to, we're going to reduce our office space. We're going to do a lot more flexible. Um, you can work from homes um, and you know, we, we don't need you in the office that often, but as you say, like that, there is a point where a lot of people don't actually handle being alone too well, but there are others that thrive on it. So I think there's going to need to be a balance in the way that companies are projecting how their company may look in the future, because at the moment it's very superficial what we're seeing. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So you talked about the ultra marathon and, and marathons there. And, you know, for those people that have done endurance events, what we're riding through the emotions and resilience required right now, they feel quite at home. They're so used to it. And it's, it's a skill set they can bring to the fore. What was it like for you to cross that ultra marathon finish line at age 54? As you spoke about earlier, 20 years prior, you couldn't run one lap around the track. You know, I'm, I'm trying to reflect back on why I even decided to do that at that point in time. Um, I think I wind up doing endurance result uh, events when I need some time alone and some time out on the trails. And so when I decided to do the ultra, my mom had just passed. Uh, I, I had just done a, a, a cycling event from, from Boston to New York City, a 275-mile uh, cycling event. And I was looking for a next challenge and I really wanted to get out on the trails to kind of clear my head. And that was a great excuse to do that. So it started with some longer trail runs with a 10K. And then I was feeling pretty good. And I said, you know, I never ran a marathon. The farthest I had ever run was about 17 miles. And that was only because I got lost in the woods. <laughs> I set out to do 13 and I wound up doing 17. And that was when I was in my 40s. So I hadn't done anything like that, Um, but I was feeling so good. I'm like, you know, if there's ever a time, now is it. So um, in June of 2018, I signed up for this uh, ultra marathon in New Jersey in November and, and put together a training plan and just started doing it. And that time I was listening to a lot of podcasts. I was coming up with the business ideas. Like there was a lot that was changing and being able to go out. I know this sounds crazy for some people, but a four hour run, all I had to do is just run for four hours while listening to something uplifting was really a way of, you know, that was my way of taking care of myself at that time. 
So, uh, so the, the longer runs turned into, uh, you know what, I probably should know what a marathon feels like before I, I, I start this, this ultra and seven weeks before I did the ultra, uh, you know, and this isn't what I would recommend anybody else do, but I really needed to know what it felt like. I went to a bike path and I did a 26.2 mile run and I'm like, all right, I feel pretty good. Like I, I knew I could do it. Um, the day that I woke up for the ultra, it was like, 30 degrees Fahrenheit. It was cold. It was below freezing. And I am not a cold weather gal. Um, but it was, you know, it was just one of those things that I felt good. If it wasn't for the cold, I think, uh, you know, I was getting some, some tightness in my, in my hamstrings. But other than that, I crossed, and I have a video of it. I crossed it with a lot of energy and I'm like, you know what, if I wanted to do a, a, a 50, a 50 miler someday or a hundred miler, I think I'd, I'd have it in me. But once I did that, I felt like I was, I, I felt great that I did it. And I'm like, you know, if I ever need that time and space again, I would, I would probably entertain doing something uh, a little bit longer, but it was one of those things that no one can ever take away from me. And it, and, it, and what I love about endurance sports is that there's no choice, but for you to meet yourself in a way that you can't do in any other way. Right. So when it's mile, when you're out there and, and you're going mile after mile, it's, it's you, it's that, you know, if you can do that, like anything that's come up, uh, since then, it's like, well, you know, I've, I've done a 50 K like I could do this. I can run up this Hill. Like it really gave me a lot of confidence, um, as I'm getting older, um, you know, I'm certainly not getting younger, but I, the, the recovery and the learning that comes with that, I think is, was really the, my big takeaway rather than the crossing the finish line itself. It really was that five month process and who you are as you're training for that, that was really what I keep closest to heart. So how have, how does living your Athena lifestyle yourself, how has that changed or been adapted during COVID-19? That's a good question. Um, you know, I'm fortunate because I do get to, to work from home. That was one of the perks of, uh, being able to do this business anywhere. And right now it's, it's home, which is fine. I think it has gotten me out front a lot quicker than I would have. So I'm hosting these, uh, meditation and these writing groups. Uh, and I thought that I was going to have some time before I launched something like that. Um, but the, the uh, camaraderie and the the um, the emails that I get after these of of how how people feel after being in community uh, and a like-minded community to be able to do something like a meta meditation where you know we're bringing self-compassion to ourselves to our loved ones and expanding that circle out and feeling that we're doing something good in this world. Of, of, of trying to get positive energy out there for ourselves and for others so we can continue to do good work in the world. I wouldn't have, have I, that's not something that I could have thought of if it wasn't for the situation that we were in. So I think what it gives me is this idea of I can adapt to what's needed and find ways of being useful no matter what. If I can do it during this, I can do it during anything. So I think it's been, I don't know so much. I, I think that that's part of the Athena of the owl and the shield, right? It's both things. It's action. And it's this sense of wisdom of what's needed and how might I be able to fill that need? Yeah. Well, nice. So good adaption. And it's great to see that you've been able to create that shift a bit earlier and help other people and building that community together. We all know smart people have great answers but the most successful people ask great questions when was the last time you did something for the first time uh, well as a now a, an entrepreneur and a writer uh, certainly every day brings something new today uploading an audiobook never did that before um, but I think the spirit of your question is more, when was there that sense of churn or fear in doing something? And I would say walking into a CrossFit box for the first time at age 55 a couple of months ago was one of those moments of like, what are you doing? Um, but I did do that. And uh, with the intention of uh, not 
so much picking up the big heavy weights, although we do do that, but of doing things like learning how to do a unassisted pull-up, climbing a rope to the top of the rafters, uh, push-ups I could do, um, but really it comes like the ultra of like facing yourself. Every time I walk in that box, there's something that I can't anticipate that I'll have to figure out. How do I actually get through this workout? And so I'm happy to say that uh, I did I did climb the rope uh, several times uh, and hit the rafters. Um, and just two weeks ago, did my first pull up. So so things are moving on there. So I would definitely say CrossFit was the was the yeah big challenge. What was the one question? What is sorry? What is one question that you would love to solve? I would love to know why midlife is so dreaded. And the reason why I say that is when I was writing the book, right now the subtitle is Simple Wellness Practices for Overworked Professionals. But the working title up until about two months ago was Optimizing Vitality and Well-Being at Midlife. And every single beta reader, no male, female, it didn't matter the age, no one liked that word. And it really fascinated me. And I think it's this sense of if we say we're in midlife, we have less years ahead of us. And so the way I'd love to solve that in the work that I'm doing is how do we reimagine midlife? And that's really what the book is about. And it can be for anybody, but how do we reimagine the time that we're in that it's less about the number of years we have, and it's more about the life that we can infuse in them. And that's how I'd like to help solve that problem. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? It is definitely wholehearted living, and that comes with accepting who we are fully, both shadow and light, and truly bringing our whole selves, who we are, into what we do every day. And that's why I'm so passionate about things like self-compassion and setting good intentions and showing up fully for yourself and having that right mindset and being accountable to ourselves because I really feel like doing what lights you up, I mean, that's my definition of an extraordinary life. Well, you're definitely doing what you um, lights you up at the moment and it's great to see the work that you're doing. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Sure, yeah. Um, they can find me at... Uh, athenawellness.com. Uh, if they go to the website, there's blogs, uh, there's an overview of the principles. It's a free PDF download. They're more than welcome uh, to find that. And the book now is on Amazon. Uh, so if you put the Athena principles, comma, Kathy Robinson, uh, that comes up as well. Beautiful. Kathy, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. From I love hearing your story from Wall Street to wellness and how you've taken principles that you've learned along the way and understood yourselves and brought that into the Athena principles and what that's providing for a lot of people around the world. And, and such, uh, when I was reading your book, and I haven't read the whole thing yet, but reading it so far, it was so easy to stay engaged with it. It was um, simple, it clarified, um, it made it very easy for me to understand. And I think that's important. And a lot of people write and they try and get too big and fancy with their words and, and what they write in there. But when you keep it simple, it's easy to grasp and understand the concept. So I really appreciate the work you've done there. For you to be able to separate your life when you were younger in this is my workspace, this is my home space, I think is a really important lesson for people to, to learn, especially now when work is now at home, you've got to be able to separate. So I think that's a good lesson for people. But I just, I, I really appreciate your, the way you think about community and how that's so important in helping people realize their wellness and therefore their well-being and how they're growing as a person. Um, to see you take on new challenges, uh, no matter what time of your life, and I think that's important, people kind of get to this comfort space where they're uh, it's too hard to, to try something new. And to see what you're doing here and creating 
a whole new space for yourself with the thinner principles and the work you're doing in this wellness space. So I want to acknowledge you and thank you for all the amazing work you're doing. And I know that you'll be making a huge difference to a lot of people around the world with your work right now. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And I really appreciate uh, what you do as well. I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast and uh, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. On this week's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about listening is the sound of intelligence. Do you find yourself talking more than other people in the room? Listening is the art of understanding and connecting with people. Many people think they need to speak more to be heard and show they either understand a topic or have the right answer. Asking a question and intentionally focusing on listening is the art of intelligence. Here are three ways to be more intelligent. Number one, ask a question. Number two, listen intently. And number three, ask another question. Thank you for listening to a thought-provoking and relevant conversation with Kathy Robinson, the Athena Principles on the Active CEO podcast. Do you find it easy to make something difficult, but a challenge to make it simple? Simplification is sophistication. The simpler you make something, the more sophisticated it is for the listener or consumer to understand. Here are three ways to ensure your message is delivered and heard in a simple but sophisticated manner. Number one, check, would a 10 year old understand it? Number two, Cut the content by 50% and then again by another 50%. Number three, speak it out loud. It doesn't make sense to you. Do you need some help in making your messages simpler? At Active CEO Coaching, we have developed CEO presence to help you evolve your communication, influence and performance to positively impact the people you interact with. We're here to help you simplify your message. For more details, please give me a call or contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of www.craigjohns.com.au website. I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast with Ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.